Welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. I invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40, the Old Testament book of Isaiah, the 40th chapter. If you would like to use the Bibles there in the chairs in front of you, uh, we are beginning on page 505. We're wanting to look at this entire chapter this morning, so I encourage you to turn. Uh, again, not having the, the screen for PowerPoint, uh, also Sometimes I rely on that, that I can put up the verses and go through them quicker, so I need you to turn, and I will try to fill in the blanks that are in your bulletin uh, And as we go along, and if I miss any, you can see me afterwards, and I, I will try to get those to you. I want us to consider this morning, though, that our God is great and God is good. We've sung of that in the hymns, and I want us to consider it this morning. One of my favorite observers and, and analysts of child development and human behavior is Bill Watterson. The basis of Watterson's work, he used two characters, one named after a 16th century theologian, the other after a 17th century philosopher. But Watterson is actually the American cartoonist who created the, Cal the comic strip Calvin and Hobbes. It's one of my favorite comic strips, and even though he finished writing it almost 30 years ago, I still find his work enjoyable, concise, and really very perceptive when conveying various truths. One of the, the comics that he had written a number of years ago that really brought this out was a, a three-panel cartoon that began with, with Calvin and his sidekick, Tiger Hobbs outside. They're looking up at the stars at night, and, and Calvin makes the statement that he says, look at all the stars. The universe just goes on forever. Hobbes responds, it kind of makes you wonder why man considers himself such a big deal. And then the third panel showed them back in the house, the lights are on, stereo going, uh, the phone is ringing, the television's blaring, and, and Calvin's sitting there with the remote in his hand, and he says, that's why we stay inside with our appliances. You know, it's probably one of the most insightful things when we realize that for us, one of the most inspiring and humbling experiences is to stand outside alone under the night sky, away from the night pollution of the city, and look up at the stars. This is one of the things I enjoy, on our, enjoy doing on our men's retreat, and to go out on the field and look up and see the Milky Way. There's nothing that really provides the, the sense of remoteness and distance and makes us aware of our own insignificance and littleness as to gaze at the expanse of space. And even in this age of tremendous technology, our minds are humbled as we try to comprehend the unfathomable depths of the universe. And so what Hobbes described in saying, it kind of makes you wonder why man thinks he's such a big deal, is stated much more eloquently by David in Psalm 8 when he says, when I consider 
your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you would visit or pay attention to him? But David's response, rather than going inside with his appliances, was in verse 9 of Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. That's really God's plan and desire as we would consider the heavens that declare the glory of God as that we would consider his majesty and praise his name. But rather than contemplate the majesty of God and respond with adoration, the nearly universal response today is to behave like the comic strip characters and retreat into our own little world, our own comfort zones, and, and spend our time with our appliances. And we have appliances today that we can go outside and we still don't have to look up. How many people do you see that walk around outside with their heads down? And the failure to declare and consider the glory of God. Because actually what Watterson said over 30 years ago is very pertinent today. But those who fail to contemplate the greatness and goodness of God find little comfort in their appliances. Oh, they may give us a distraction. They can, they can provide information. They can be an escape but they don't really bring us true connections and very little true comfort. What I want us to consider this morning is that because of his great strength, God's great compassion provides comfort in the times of great difficulty. God's great strength, his great compassion will help you when you're facing great trials. That's what I want us to see from this chapter in Isaiah this morning. If you have your Bibles open to Isaiah 40, we're going to begin in verse 12. We're going to begin reading in verse 12 and, and see a portion of this, really looking at one paragraph, and then we're going to back up and look at the entire chapter very briefly. Look with me at verse 12, Isaiah chapter 40. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? measured heaven with a span and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure, weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord? Or as his counselor has taught him, with whom did he take counsel? And who instructed him and taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are as a drop in the bucket and are counted as the small the dust on the scales. Look, he lifts up the isles as a very little thing, and Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor its beasts sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing. They are counted by him less than nothing and worthless. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that as we look into it this morning, that, that we would not only contemplate your goodness and glory, but that we would be comforted by your, your goodness. Your greatness would help us to understand that you are able to do what you have planned and work in our lives. And so, Lord, we pray that we would be strengthened by your word. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. I want us this morning to co consider the comfort that there is as we contemplate the, the God of the universe. 
The paragraph that we just read has been considered one of the high water marks of Scripture for its eloquence. But the 40th chapter of Isaiah brings a, a shift in the book. There's a significant change in focus in this entire book. In fact, it's been referred to as the New Testament section of Isaiah. Isaiah has 66 chapters. The Bible has 66 books. The New Testament has 27 chapters. And from from chapter 40 through chapter 66, there are 27 chapters in Isaiah. And, And it begins, this chapter, chapter 40, begins with a quote that is fulfilled by John the Baptist at the opening of the New Testament. In fact, the shift in the book is so clear here in Isaiah that theological liberals have tried to deny that Isaiah is actually the author of the latter section of the book. So they try to say because it's so accurate in telling what takes place that, well, it was written at a later time by a different author and just put together as one book as Isaiah. Well, they're trying to deny the, the, the prophecy, the inspiration of Scripture, that it's the Deutero-Isaiah theory, but what's the problem with that is Jesus quotes from all the sections of Isaiah. Some divide it up into three sections, and, and Jesus quotes from all of them and attributes them to Isaiah. What it really tells us is that God tells the future. But the chapter begins with a word of comfort to discourage people. And and chapter 39 speaks of God's coming judgment. The the judgment that would actually come because of Hezekiah's disobedience and and other disobedience of Israel that that Hezekiah prays, God gives a reprieve and says, this will not come in, in your lifetime, but your sons, some of your own children, will be taken captive into Babylon and it and it describes what's going to happen. And, and, I, and Hezekiah just kind of says, well, at least it's not going to happen when I'm alive. Probably not the best response, but it's a statement of judgment. So what is needed after chastening and judgment? And the answer is comfort. And that's how chapter 40 begins. The first point that I want to see, Roman numeral one in your bulletin, is that God's comfort comes to discouraged people. We're going to see that in the first 11 verses, that God's comfort comes to discouraged people. Beginning in in chapter 40, the words are words of comfort and restoration. The peace that will come, the, the book provides comfort. There's going to be the time when Messiah will come and rule and reign. And in fact, we, we know that Messiah comes twice. The first time he comes as that suffering servant, the second time he'll come as a a reigning king and set up the millennial kingdom, that will come after the tribulation period. And we believe that the church believers will be raptured and not here for that tribulation. But then God will, Jesus Christ will come and establish his millennial kingdom. And so we see that coming. But but it begins in verse 1 of chapter 40 with the word of comfort. Comfort. Yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare has ended, her iniquity is pardoned, for she's received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sin. It's a statement of comfort. Now, when we read get, they receive double for all of their sin, we, we kind of think, okay, they got twice as much. Actually, what it means is the exact double. It would be like when we look in a mirror, 
We see our double. They got what was directly proportionate to their sinning. That God is just. That this this chapter is speaking of, of the comfort that would come to Israel, but it's applicable for us because it's based on the character of God. And what we have to understand, and we see this, the iniquity is pardoned, that, that our sin, our shame are of no glory to God. But He is glorified by our deliverance. That His glory is seen in His work and that, that Jesus is better at saving than you are at sinning. Because it says in Hebrews 7.25, He is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through Him. Jesus is better at saving us than we are at sinning. And while our sin is of no glory to God, His deliverance is. And so we see this here, these words of comfort. And what we see is that He is both a conquering king and a compassionate shepherd. And that's the, the application point under that first Roman numeral. He's a king and a shepherd. He comes in victory but he also comes with compassion. I mean, these are familiar verses. If, you, if you're familiar with Handel's Messiah, you have pr- probably heard these words before. Verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, every mountain brought low. The crooked place made straight, the rough places plain. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. What it's telling us that when God comes, nothing will stand in the way of his restoration. The valleys can be brought up, the hills can be brought down. Geography is not a barrier for God. He will do what he intends. But it's also interesting in these verses that you find the the statement of a voice speaking three times in verse 3, verse 6, and verse 9. In verse 3 it says, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. In verse 6, and the voice said, cry out. Verse 9, O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get into the high mountain. And he who brings good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. So what is the voice supposed to say? Well, it's supposed to give a message of comfort. The message of salvation through repentance, which is evident in the New Testament, of God's unfailing word and the care of the good shepherd. And all of this is being brought out. So in verse 10 it says, Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is, is with him and his work before him. He, shall, he will feed his flock like a shepherd. There's the compassionate shepherd and the conquering king. He will gather the lambs with his arms and carry them in his bosom. It's a message of comfort and joy or comfort and hope. This is how it begins because God's comfort comes to discouraged people. But the second thing that we see in what we've read part of already is that God's comfort comes by contemplating His greatness. So the second point is I want us to consider His greatness, that we would contemplate God's greatness. I mean, if the message is one of comfort and hope and joy, well, how can I have comfort that He is able to gather and carry, that He's able to lead and protect? Well, verse 9 says, behold your God. 
that God does not have an agenda to judge us because there is no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. God's desire is that we would trust Christ and He paid the price for our sins. He was judged for my sin. And that there's no condemnation to those of us who are in Christ Jesus. So He is a kind, gentle, compassionate God. And He's able to do what He says. And and that's why it's so important to consider His greatness because it's nice if somebody cares for you But there are people who care for us and care for our circumstances and care for our situation, but they have no power to do anything about it. They can't change it. God can deal with it. And the first thing that we see in what we've already read is in letter A is that we would be astonished by His power as Creator. That when we are comforted by God's greatness, when we realize his, His power as the Creator. These are the verses that we read. And unfortunately, since we don't have the PowerPoint, I can't show you the pictures that we have, but you can picture in your mind, if you've ever seen the expanse of ocean, when we lived in Maine, we lived two miles from the coast. And many times we would go over, and and I I love just standing on the shore and looking out at the vast expanse of ocean. Sometimes it was very calm. It was almost like glass. Other times it was just boiling and there were the billows. And in all of that, it's always impressive. And it says, who's measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? God has. That he can measure the water, the oceans, in a cupped hand. When we realize that 71% of our earth's surface is covered with water, and when you, if you were to take the tallest mountain in the world, Mount Everest, and put it in the deepest part of the ocean, it would be covered by over a mile of water. That's how much water there is. In fact, years ago, I was was flying over that deepest part of the ocean, the Mariana Trench, where it goes down over 36,000 feet. And just this is kind of how my mind works at times. We're, we're flying, and I'd looked at the screen on the, the plane, and we were flying at about 40,000 feet. As I started calculating, I thought, we're flying at about seven miles, and the ocean under us is about seven miles deep. If this plane goes down, we can go down for 14 miles. <laughs> now, I won't be alive for all of that, <laughs> but we're over the deepest part of the ocean. And to realize how much water there is. That that if the mountains were flattened out and the valleys raised, the land would be covered with one and a half miles of water. Which helps us understand what took place at the flood. And so when you think of that kind of magnitude of water, how much can you hold in your hand? God can hold all of it in his cupped hand. And and it speaks of this, but then it goes on and it talks about how he marks off the heaven with a span. The span is a hand width. And when you consider the vastness of the the universe, the heavens, the, the starry skies, we have to measure it in light years. I I am fascinated with the pictures that are coming back from the the new telescope and to see this and and it's interesting because it's changing their theories of the Big Bang. Like somehow that doesn't add up with what they're finding out. And and we measure the heavens in light years just to try to get a number that we can somewhat comprehend. So so we talk about if you travel at the speed of light, which is 186,000 miles per second, 
or close to six trillion miles a year than, than we try to measure. So to go across our galaxy, the Milky Way, it would take about 100,000 light years. Like, how fast is the speed of light? Well, you can go around the world in one second seven times if you're traveling at 186,000 miles per second. These are things that are, we just really cannot comprehend, but they, they're used to explain the greatness of God. And, and so if it takes 100,000 years to go across our galaxy, and it's said that there are 200 billion to 400 billion stars in our galaxy, which that's a pretty big number. You know, we're missing it by 200 billion, but that, that's the guess. And around a trillion planets in our galaxy, which I still think Pluto should get counted then if we've got that many, and ours is not that big a galaxy. It's believed that there are billions of galaxies, and ours is on the smaller side compared to many of them. And God measures all of it with his hand. And, and, and we hear these numbers, but this is saying, lift up your eyes. Quit looking at your appliances. And when I consider the heavens, the sun and moon that thou hast ordained, what is man? You are mindful of him. This is what this passage is telling us. And then it goes on and it talks about the mountains. And, and it speaks of the, the dust of the earth doesn't even matter. That, that it's like the dust on a on a scale. The, the nations are as a drop in a bucket and counted as the small dust on the scales. When you consider the mountain ranges, and we see these around us, you know, we can look at South Mountain, Camelback, and, and the Superstitions, and then Sedona, and the Rocky Mountains, and, and the Appalachian Mountains, the Alps. And again, these are, these are nothing for God. They're weighed in the scale. And God doesn't need any help in planning all of this. That's what verses 13 and 14 said. You know, who's given him counsel? Who's been his counselor? He doesn't take counsel from anybody. He doesn't need it. He didn't need any advice. Nobody had to draw up blueprints for him. And he def definitely didn't need to get permits from any organization for what he did. But I think it's good to note when you read these, and we read these verses quickly, all of these verses are speaking of design. It didn't just happen. The origins were predetermined. They are, there's a complexity of life. Even now our scientists find that when they look at single cells, there's a complexity in those. And it's, it's comforting when we realize the God who did all of this planned your salvation and my salvation. And we are part of his plan from before he created the world. We're not an afterthought. Ephesians 1.4, chosen before the foundation of the world. God truly is great, and he is good. And then in verses 15 and following, it describes the nations like a drop in the bucket. It's, it speaks of them as the small dust on the scales, which is a fascinating picture. You know, when, when you go to the grocery store to buy vegetables or, or fruit, and they have that scale hanging there, and do you dust it off before you put fruit on it? Say, well, you know, I don't want to pay for the dust. No, the dust is insignificant. Now, I've, I've told you I, I worked in an orchard, and, and one of the things that we had in our orchard wasn't just apples, but we had cherries. And there were several cherry trees, and we would have a time of year when people would come and they could pick their own cherries. 
And they'd bring their own buckets, their different containers. And, and so we would put them on our scale before they would go out. We'd put a piece of tape on and how much that, that bucket weighed. They'd go out and pick cherries, bring it back, put it on the scale, and then we'd weigh it and charge them for the cherries. And I remember one day that we were doing this. We did it for a number of months when the cherries were ready. And this, this lady comes back and she puts her bucket on the scale. And as my boss is ringing it up and starting, she says, well, you're not going to charge me for the twigs and the leaves and the stems, are you? And, and my boss got this twinkle in his eye and he said, well, maybe we should put you on the scale and figure out how many cherries you ate while you were picking them and charge you for those instead. <laughs> she didn't say another word. <laughs> I guess paying for the twigs and stems was much better in her mind. But it was funny because how much is that going to weigh? That's how God views the nations. They're like the dust on the scale. Russia and China and the Ukraine and the United States. God's not wringing his, hand wonder, his hands wondering what's going on. And it causes us to come to this contemplation because we're considering the greatness of God and his power, that, that when you see his greatness in creation. But the second thing is, then letter B, is we ought to be repulsed by the foolishness of idolatry. When we understand what God has done in creation, his majesty and power, then consider how foolish it is to try to worship him through things that are made. That's verses 18 and following. Look at, look at verse 18. It says, To whom will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare to him? The workman molds an image. The goldsmith overspreads it with gold. The silversmith casts silver chains. Whoever is too impoverished for such a contribution chooses a tree that will not rot. He seeks for himself a skillful workman to prepare a, a carved image that will not totter. And the emphasis of these verses is now what man is doing. He's making something. He's, he's, he's molding it. He's pouring the gold or the silver. He's covering it. It's man's making. And it's saying there's no sacrifice that is worthy of such God. There's no type of thing that man can do the making of idols ought to be repulsive. It's absurd because they're making a God, they're making something that they're going to then worship. You know, the universe is produced by the divine mind. We're not really tempted to seek comfort, security, and salvation in a graven image. That, that's not how we think. Our idolatry in America is much more sophisticated. We have American idols. We pursue pleasure and recre recreation, money, science. You know, these are things that we will worship. Oh, well, we have to trust these things. You know, the idea that all of this happened by chance it is foolish. We've already read the divine design, but one of the problems with the whole theory of evolution is you've got three major hurdles that you have to overcome. How do you get from nothing to something? Something's always had to exist. For us, it's in the beginning, God. God has always existed. For evolution, they've got to come up with something else. What, what caused the Big Bang? Well, these gases. So where did the gases come from? They've always been. In the beginning, gas. I'd rather trust God than gas. 
How do you get from nothing to something? How do you get from animate, you know, rocks and stones and, and dust to something that's alive? And how do you get from the, the inanimate to the animate? How do you get from something that's not alive to that which is alive? How do you overcome that barrier? That's a significant barrier. And then how do you get from simple life forms to complex life forms? A number of years ago, there was a book written on, on the eye. It was titled Darwin's Black Box. And I believe that the author at that time was not a believer but became one. But he, he said the eye can't just evolve because so many things have to work together for there to be any value in the eye. Well, the more we know about the human systems... Do we understand how foolish it is? And, and, and there really is a humor in this passage and actually a couple chapters over in, in chapter 44 where, where Isaiah is saying, you know, what if you made your God, you know, you take this piece of wood and you carve an idol out of part of it and then you, you throw the other into and make a fire and you cook your meal. What if you actually used the God part of the wood to cook your meal and you made your idol out of the part you were supposed to burn? And that's what Isaiah 44 talks about. Well, here he's saying, well, you know, if you can't afford gold and silver, you, you find somebody who will make, you'll, you'll get good wood because you don't want it to rot. You know, it's really bad if your God rots. And, and so that's what verse, verse 20 is saying. You don't want your God to rot and you don't want it to fall over. So we, in verse, the end of verse 20, we compare a, an image that won't totter. If your God rots or t- falls over, it's not a really good God. All the gods of the world will do that. That only the true God will stand. And so we we see all of this taking place. We ought to be repulsed by the foolishness of idolatry. And then third, we need to be reminded of his authority over humanity. And that's what we see in verses 21 through 26. It begins with the question, have you not known? Have you not heard? Don't you get it? That's that's what Isaiah is asking here. Don't you understand that that this is what you've been told from the beginning and what you've understood from the foundations of the world, that the one who sits in the circle of heaven, verse 22, looks on the inhabitants of the earth like grasshoppers. God is great. We need to be reminded, and then it continues on and speaks of not only his, his authority over the humanity, but also over the heavens. He brings the princes, in verse 23, to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. The decisions made by the courts of the earth, the congress, the the kings, the councils, God is sovereign over all. He is over humanity. He directs the nations. He has power over life and death. That's verse 24, as it speaks of that. He sustains all things in the heavens. That's verse 26. That that the sky, the the stars, the planets are not deities. You don't direct your future by the stars. God sustains the stars. He knows their names. So what are we supposed to do? Verse 26. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created all things. Get our eyes off our appliances and look up. Consider how God directs our attention to creation. Get our eyes off of ourselves and our things and see what he has done. Because we are made in the image of God. You know, it's interesting when you consider how many animals walk on all fours where their head is pointed down. Being made in the image of God, we're made in a way that we can be looking up and consider what God has done. 
When you know who God is, you understand what the problem of sin is, God's greatness and goodness, it brings everything that's going on in life into focus. Because God is personally involved in your life and he has authority and control and he's a good God, you can trust him. Contemplate his his greatness. The third thing, though, is God's comfort comes in the midst of life's confusion. Roman numeral three there in the outline God's comfort comes in the midst of life's confusion. We see this in verses 27 and 28. And and it tells us in these verses, there's there's two ways of thinking. Look at verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. These verses are telling us there's two ways of thinking. There's a wrong way of thinking which says God is too great to care. That's the question being asked in verse 27. Why do you say that that God doesn't notice? That God somehow lost track, that my way is hidden, that, that God doesn't care. I have a just claim, but God's not paying attention. I'm just too small. Because God is so great, he doesn't even know I'm here. Do you ever feel that way? I mean, that's not an uncommon thought. Well, you know, I know God's in control and I know he cares, but it doesn't seem like he notices me. That's verse 27. That's the wrong way of thinking. The right way of thinking is verse 28. Trust is realizing that God is too great to fail. The right conclusion, the right way of thinking is God's too great to fail. Have you not known, have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the Creator, never faints. He's never weary. But we have to focus on His character. Don't you know? Haven't you heard? Look at His character. He is everlasting God. He is the Lord. He's the Creator. He created you. He created me. That ought to motivate us to worship properly. It brings us to that place of the heavens declare the glory of God. That we consider that. It ought to challenge us to pray because we know He hears. He is so great that He can hear every one of our prayers and see every one of our needs. So do you look at God through the lens of your circumstances? Or do you look at your circumstances through the lens of who God is? That in the midst of the confusion of life, the wrong thinking is, well, God's too great to care about me. No, the right thought is God is too great to fail. He sent His Son. He who spared not His own Son, won't He deliver us up to us what we need? The fourth thing I want us to see, though, is that God's comfort comes through His strength. We're comforted by His strength. The questions that are being asked in these verses, and and it says in verse 29 now, he gives power to the weak. To those who have no might, he increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. These verses are reminding us of the strength of God. He gives power to those who are weak. What we need to understand is, first of all, letter A, trusting in human strength will fail. 
When we trust ourselves, we're going to struggle. And, and, and people do that, and we're reminded of this, that even the, even the strength of youth will fail. One of, the, one of the wonderful things about having a college, a seminary, and young people all around here is when we need jobs done, we can get folks to help. And, and it's not that I can't do some of that, but I can mess up my back a whole lot quicker. Or I may be able to do it in my recovery times a whole lot worse. You know, when you can struggle to get out of bed in the morning, say, well, you know, oh, oh to have youth again. Even young people grow faint and weary. And some of that's just with life. You know, we appreciate the, the help that young people can give, but let's face it, the pressures of life can beat us down. And it happens to young people too. The discouragement among so many young people today because they're told they're here by accident. There was this big bang and this goo got together and they somehow evolved from that. There's no purpose for being here. There's no reason for living and everything's done when you die. That doesn't give hope. The hope comes from what we sang this morning. I sing the mighty power of God. There's not a plant or flower that blooms that doesn't make his glory known. And all that borrows life from him, the breath, is ever in his care. That's what gives us hope. I'm here for a purpose. I'm created by God. I'm to live for his glory. And he's in control. I can trust him. Because if I trust in my strength, it's going to fail. And that's what we see in these verses. Verse, verse 31 says, trusting in the Lord will sustain Trusting in human strength will fail, but let her be. Trusting in the Lord will bring the sustenance. He will sustain you. Those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. And the idea of waiting is not a passivity. It's the idea of hope. It's the, it's the idea of trusting. It's not sitting back in the recliner and saying, well, I'm just waiting for the Lord. No, it's trusting Him. And as I trust Him day by day, I will gain strength. And it gives us three illustrations. The, the, the illustration of a soaring eagle. If you've ever seen an eagle in flight, it's, it's majestic. Watching it catch those wind currents and go up and down and, and just to, to see that, it, it's a wonderful thing. And you, you know, it's nice when that happens in life. When you're going along and problems come and all of a sudden it feels like you're just, the Lord has brought you above that. That we're, we're above the challenges and we're able to fly over. You know, those make wonderful motivational posters. But let's face it, that's probably not most of the time where we live. You know, we, we have trials and, and there are times that we feel like we're really soaring over it, but a lot of times that's not the case. Well, it goes on and says you can run and not grow weary. You know, press on without getting tired. That's a good thing to keep running the race that is set before us, to keep pressing on in spite of that, to, to realize there, there's still more in the tank. And it's not because of me, it's because of him. So we, we seek to be faithful. But you know, I, I don't know how much of the time we feel like we're running. But then it says, but they shall run and not be weary, they shall walk and not faint. You know, that was, the, that was really the main form of transportation in that day everywhere people went they were walking they might have an animal they could ride there might be a cart but most people walked wherever they went and i'm sure that they knew what it was like to get tired at the end of a day 
It was the day-by-day, step-by-step going through life. Isn't that where we live? You know, it's, it's wonderful to be able to soar with eagles. It's great to be able to run. But isn't most of our life just putting one foot in front of the other? It's the mundane, the everyday, the mom that's got a little one hanging on their dress or their pants and spilling Cheerios on this side and milk on that side. And and just when you think you get one thing cleaned up, there's another mess. And it goes on and on. Is it ever going to end? Or being in a workplace where you've got a critical employer or a spouse that just doesn't seem to understand. And it just seems every step, day by day, We can walk and not faint. The ongoing physical struggles, you know, the debilitating problems that come, the emotional strain and and all of this, and and we're tempted to take matters into our own hand and just solve it our way. When James said, no, count it all joy, when we fall into multifaceted testings, the trying of our faith works patience, let patience have a perfect work. We don't want that. We just want to give up, throw in the towel, those vulnerable moments. And that's when we start to ask, does God see? Does he even notice? Does he care? Lord, do you understand I'm down here? No, God is too great to fail. But we have to be trusting him. You know, are we seeking something else to sustain us? Keep walking with the Lord and not faint. Put one spiritual foot in front of the other and don't quit. Remain faithful. Why? Because God is faithful. He has the power. Consider His great power. The greatness that He brings to discourage people and in the midst of the the complexities of life, the confusion of our circumstances, that comfort comes through His strength. It's because of His great character. God is great. He has the power. But He's also good. And so He begins with comfort that he will gather the flock. And then it asks the questions again, and you find this a couple of times. Have you not known? Haven't you heard? Didn't you listen? We saw that back in verse, verse 18. Who will you liken him? Verse 21, have you not known? Didn't you hear this? Are we paying attention? I struggle to pay attention. I know it. But it's when that walking and I'm getting tired. Have you not heard? Then lift up our eyes from our appliances. Maybe get away from our phone. Maybe we need to teach our kids to see the greatness of God. Because the computer games aren't going to help them when the trials of life come and the pressures push down. They're they're not going to find the security for life. They may get an escape, but at some point they're going to say, this isn't the answer. Because God is the need. We need to turn off our appliances and contemplate God. We need to teach our children, maybe read this chapter and use illustrations. Why? What do we see? God is able, God is willing, and God is trustworthy. God is able, willing, and trustworthy. And those are the final blanks in your page. But are you actively trusting in the Lord today? Salvation is through Jesus Christ because sin does not bring glory to God, but the deliverance does. And when Christ cried, it is finished, it wasn't just the penalty and the price, it was a cry of victory because of the greatness 
and the goodness of God. Have you trusted in Christ alone for your Savior this morning? And if so, in what area have you been struggling in your walk? Yes, there are days we soar. Some we run. But those who wait upon the Lord can walk day by day and not faint. Are you spiritually faint this morning? Then would you look to his greatness and his goodness for his strength? Let's pray together.